Welcome to the third hour, a Latter-day Saint home study podcast. This season, we're discussing the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. Our goals? To improve our appreciation of the gospel, to investigate the scriptures more thoroughly, to discuss tricky passages, and to build our faith. In short, to feast upon the words of Christ. Some of our talking points will be familiar. Other ideas may sound new. That's okay. Together, we'll learn something new about the Book of Mormon, no matter our starting level. Welcome again to the Third Hour Podcast. We're glad to have you. Welcome to Episode 47 of the Third Hour Podcast, The Welfare of Souls. I'm your host, Taylor. I'm Amanda. Andrew. I'm Ryan. And despite much adversity, we come to you once again remotely. <laughs> Thank you, COVID. Thank you, Utah. Ryan, you want to tell us what happens in, uh, in Moroni chapters 7 through 9? I got you. Moroni looked up to his dad. He felt inspired to add a talk Mormon gave as a high counselor. Thank you. But it was one of the good talks. <laughs> I didn't know if it was appropriate to laugh at how accurate I feel that is. <laughs> well, it is. He discusses faith, hope, and charity how one can discern good from evil, miracles, and suggestions for what we can pray. Moroni also felt that he should add two letters he received from his daddy-o, one discussing who needs to repent and be baptized, and which attributes for which to strive in order to have the comforter in one's life. The other letter is rough. It describes the awful things both the Nephites and Lamanites were doing to each other and why. And even in those horrific times, Mormon has some solid advice for his son. We're in for an interesting discussion here on the 47th episode of the Third Hour Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Impressions. What did everybody think? I had a lot of thoughts on this one. Oh. Hit it. Well, some of them are just... Some of it is... I'm. Why... Why... Why these high counselor talks? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, so first of all, what, who's writing their kid? And he's like, now I'm going to rant about infant baptism for a while. It, it seems like the infant baptism letter is responding to something that's happening where Moroni's at, right? It's, it's, yeah. that, that letter has less of a feel of a father to a son to me and more of a feel of like a higher up leader in the church to a lower leader in the church who also happens to be your son. Yeah. I guess. Well, but simultaneously, <laughs> why is this the thing that we're worried about right now? I feel like it's one of those things that, you know what? We can we can freak out about this when we're we're not eating people. And yes, I understand that they happened at different points, but still. Well, I think one of the things that's really confusing about these chapters that uh I mean, one question that arises is like who is Mormon talking to? I mean, he gives this address in Moroni 7. Who's that to and when? Um, and then again, in chapter 8, like, what branch of the church is he addressing here? Where is Moroni? Who is he with that there's enough of a church left for them to have this kind of disputation? I mean, there's a lot of mystery in these chapters, I feel like. Mystery. Well, I mean, so I'm confused as to why it was sent. I mean, because we've seen instances where Paul was responding to an issue, but usually you at least get the sense of what the issue was. Um, one thing that's, I, I'm not sure why it was included. It just doesn't seem that useful. Oh, you're talking about chapter eight specifically. Yeah. 
That's so funny. I loved that chapter. It was very useful to help people, at least at least in a in a certain time of my life when I was talking to people that spoke Spanish. <laughs> Is that a better way well, than saying great. a mission story? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not entirely following you, Andrew. I um I mean, when you say we had a sense of what Paul's responding to, I think we have a pretty good sense of what Mormon's responding to here. It's infant baptism. We don't have a good sense of exactly what the theological dimensions of that argument are, for sure, but there's there's clearly an issue he's responding to. Well, no, but I'm talking more about the theological dimensions. I mean, so reading this from... This is, a, this is a tough chapter because it does read like a 19th century person's misunderstanding of infant baptism. Hmm. Well, that's a good impression. I'm sure we'll get there when we get to eight, right? <laughs> <laughs> no one likes my impressions. This is why I don't give impressions. I know. No, no, I, I totally like agree your impression. with your impression. <laughs> the point of the impressionist is it's a big fat tease slash maybe you had an overall impression. Yeah. I, I think all these chapters were really interesting. That is a word for it. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to be the uh, the excited person tonight. Well, mostly Moroni seven. I actually, I actually really love the whole book. Of, there's something about Moroni that I've always really liked. Like, I don't know what it is about uh, him as an author, but I, I've always felt like Moroni cared about me more than some of the other authors. Oh, like, I've always felt this sort of sense of deep compassion for Moroni, and um, I kind of, I feel that in these chapters. I, sh- I, I'm excited to talk about chapter eight. I, I mean, I, I do share some of the. I think there's some interesting, difficult things to to wrestle with in chapter eight. Um, but but I uh, overall reading these, I really I, I feel a sense of I don't know. I've always really liked them. They're kind of warm, fuzzy chapters for me. Um, and Ronnie Seven in particular has given me some ideas that have been important to me. Um, most notably, I really like um, I really like what Ronnie Seven does with the atonement. Um, one of my favorite understandings for how Christ and his power are useful now and not just in the future comes from Ronnie Seven. Um, this whole argument about a, a, a bitter fountain can't bring forth good fruit. Um, at, at first glance, that argument's always kind of bothered me. Like, this means literally none of us can do anything useful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my impression from that has been that, like, what he goes on to say is the way you can do something useful is by laying hold on Christ. And I really like Alma 13 too, as a cross reference that talks about a preparatory redemption. So like if you want to do something good, Christ has to like cleanse you first and then you can do it. <laughs> it's talking about using the priesthood in that chapter. But um, I feel like I'm, I'm not sure I'm explaining this very well, but I, I Moroni seven has given me this sense that um, when I try to do the Lord's work, there's some way in which the atonement, and which Christ's power becomes part of that and enables me to do good, even though I am not yet good. There's this sense that like to become like God, I have to learn to do good, but I can't do good because I'm not good. And somehow Christ inserts himself into that process and makes it possible. And I really like that way of thinking about it because it makes the atonement real now. Does that make, did that make any sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. With the atonement being real now. Yeah. I also like to think about this in terms. I think this ties back well to um, uh, the discussion we've had about you know the Book of Mormon is always saying that Christ has been working in all for all people and in all times, and we've talked about how that's kind of problematic because you know people weren't Christians in ancient China. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I think in this way of thinking about it, that that 
in our progress of becoming like God, we require Christ, the pure fountain, to insert himself into our actions, whether we're explicitly aware of it or not. And I think even we Christians are often not explicitly aware of his work. Um, then, then I like that way of thinking about his work, him constantly working with all people who are doing good. So I think it ties in well to some of the other discussions we've had. So, so I guess my kind of long impression is I, I really love Moroni 7. Um, and it's had a pretty profound impact in the way I approach my worship. That's great. <laughs> Can I ask you, we, so we've talked about wrestling, right? With uh -huh. gospel topics, wrestling with the, the book of Mormon. I, I liked, uh, chapter seven, verse 16, which it talks about how the spirit of Christ is given, given to every man and that he can know between good and evil. Does, does that play into, into your personal, uh, equation? for figuring out for wrestling does the spirit play into my personal equation sure but just like this this concept of that the spirit of christ is no is given to every man to know good from evil i i think that the uh the the idea given here for choosing good from evil um i think i don't disagree with what it's saying i mean i think it's true good things will bring us to christ and bad things will bring us away from him I think what I struggle with in these chapter in these particular verses personally is that the way we usually interpret this is if it brings me closer to my version of Christ. And I think that's potentially problematic. So I, I when when I tr when I use this kind of thinking I like to try and think of uh like how am I approaching Christ? How am I defining Christ? Am I letting him define himself? Or am I defining him a priori and then using these passages as a way to justify the actions I'm already taking? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I think uh, one way I've looked at this, because reading this chapter, um, this this is the chapter that, that was the first time I, I thought, okay, I totally agree with what President Hinckley said, where it was, hey, we, we want to have all of your good. Basically, there's good everywhere. And it's not that I didn't agree with it. It was just trying to wrap my head around it. And he, and he said, you know, we want to see if there's anything else that we can, we can add or, or, and vice versa, right? I think, mm -hmm. I think having this attitude to be able to talk with people really helps with conversations to be able to put, your, put yourself in other people's shoes to, to look for that good and say, yep, that is good. That's great. But I understand what you're trying to say too, Taylor, is that, that, that that's where it gets tricky because there, there will be people that will say, nope, it's this way and that's the only way and anything else can't be of God because it's not his way. I find this entire passage very troubling. Um, and part of that is because it's impossible for me to separate this passage from per some personal experiences. I feel like normally that's something I don't struggle with with scripture. Hmm. With this passage, it's it's very hard for me to do. Um, you know, Taylor mentions that there's a way that we generally interpret it, and I feel like that that way is actually pretty harmful. Um, and it certainly has been for me. So it's 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 really hard for me to approach this chapter generously. That makes sense. Yeah, when it when it comes to um... So, so I actually had had planned to. Well, when it when it comes to these passages about choosing knowing good and evil, I I, I actually really share Andrew's um, discomfort. I, I don't think I have probably the same personal experiences, but I just 
I really like something Andrew said a few episodes ago. I'm trying to remember exactly how he phrased it, but but when we start using the scriptures as like a bludgeon to to um to stifle someone else's thoughts rather than a foundation from which to like explore God, um, then we know we're in trouble. And I feel like I hear this pass this passage is easily misused in that way. Um because again, we have well, I have this idea in my head of what Christ means, and therefore it's clear to me that you are sinning because you're not conforming to that idea of who Christ is. Is that kind of the way it's been? Is that do you agree that's the way it's misused, Andrew? Does that speak to what you're thinking about? Yes, I mean, so not to overshare. This is it's like you can't go ten verses in here without stumbling across something that I find very frustrating. Um. <laughs> Which and, and that's a huge one. Um, so, so just this idea for for one thing. So, it pre- it presents a very simplistic view of what people are, are capable of, which I'm which I'm very wary of. So, for instance, Taylor, you mentioned China. Are we are we to assume within that certain worldview? And I don't think that this is what the passage is saying, but are we to assume that because Christianity didn't exist in China, that no one did anything good? No. No. Right. I I would agree. But that's kind of how this has been used uh, multiple times in my life as a bludgeon. Um, I've I've seen this passage used often to shut people up um, because... You say, well, the the things we're supposed to do are very plain, but what happens when the delineation between right action and less right action is not plain as day? Um, what happens when judgment isn't simple? And I and one of the reasons this frustrates me is because uh, of a personal experience in my life um, with a priesthood leader who liked to use the "by their fruits you shall know them" formulation, and then the fruits completely failed to bear out. Um, does that mean that the people experimenting on the word were not righteous? Were, were they not good despite doing good things? I mean, this is, this is a common type of thought found in very old scripture where they're trying to explain even where does conscience come from? Why are we thinking beings? And it basically gets wrapped up into, you know, an origin myth that it's because, all of your thoughts are are just God and your conscience is just God and no one can do any positive act independent of God, but all of your negative acts are independent of God. And it, I, I just find it so simplistic, especially when people use it to argue what I think are actually for evil. <laughs> um, they don't feel it's for evil. They feel like the truth is plain as day. And I'm sure we'll get into that, this, um, perhaps next time, but what is the role of questioning one's actions? I feel like unwarranted confidence of faith that your actions are right can actually, I feel like that's often far worse than doubt. Um, in fact, in general, I think that's far worse than doubt. So, so this passage I find really tricky to navigate. So you mentioned, Andrew, that you don't think this is what the passage is saying. What, what do you think it's saying? And the passage meaning verse 16 still? Well, I'm I'm up to basically, I'm through like 19. Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. But yeah, so everything up through kind of that, what do I think it's actually saying? Oh, man, now, now what, wait for me to hem and haw for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Better than me hemming and hawing for 10 minutes. 
<laughs> I can say something while you hem and haw. This has been quite an interesting little discussion for me to listen to because I've heard people make this argument before and we've talked about so much about balkanizing the scriptures and it's been interesting to go through again and see like okay so when you read certain verses in isolation yeah you can absolutely read it as in that really negative smackdown on other people and cultures way but then as you keep reading then he starts talking about everybody and he gets more into it after the how he rambles and ate about infant baptism for a while and then he starts talking about and like obviously this applies not just to baptism but in being nice to everybody and blah 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 and not judging everybody and blah 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 and it's like oh well we just skimmed right over that verse when we were talking about this in seminary <laughs> but so in the reading of it this time what's worked so well for me throughout this whole year has just been about the personal application and so the way that worked really well for me to read this wasn't in the judging the good in other people, but in judging my own goods and not evils, because I don't think I do a lot of things that are evil, but my own bads and my own good, better bests. And like, nice. what what is it that I do that is inviting me to do good things? And what is inviting me maybe not to do bad things, but it's not a good thing. There's that that lovely middle ground in between not actually bad, but also not good. And like, <laughs> what do I do that is pers persuading me to believe more in Christ, to be f more full of his love and serve him and be inspired by him? Like it talks about in 13, like what in that personal application instead of how can I focus outwardly instead of focusing inwardly? Great. So I, I feel like some of my complaint is that in a certain way we read 11 backward. 11. Um, so, so verse 11 says a bitter fountain cannot bring forth good water. Neither can a good fountain bring forth bitter water. Wherefore a man being a servant of the devil cannot follow Christ. And if he follow Christ, he cannot be a servant of the devil. I think we, I think we conclude as Taylor said, we're, with an a priori case. So we say, well, I'm a follower of Christ, therefore I cannot be a servant of the devil. Yes, exactly. And, and it's devoid of introspection. It's devoid of everything else that I feel this passage is trying to ask me to do. Um, when it talks about God inviting and enticing us, um, to me, that speaks of introspection. I don't, it may say that the way to judge is as plain, but I, I, I feel like that's actually kind of uh, overselling how simple judgment can be. I do feel like this is telling us in loaded terms to be good judges. Um, so, you know, it, it, we're told to judge, but not judge wrongfully. We're, we're told that we should understand daylight from the dark. And I don't think that's necessarily easy, especially when people are saying that because they're followers of Christ, what they do must be good. And I think it's, I think it's the inverse argument. I, I think it's saying is what you're doing good or not that that shows who you are. Um, but I, I think we approach it the other direction. 
So Amanda's generally. direction, Amanda's direction is the way to go. That interest. I would agree. Yeah, I, I I agree with Amanda, and I think, but I but I feel like the problem is is that this is so often in but in my life. I mean, this is the kind of thing. I, th- this passage is one that actually has directly led to when I was a young man uh, losing my testimony. Oh, um, because I had a bishop who loved to talk about by their fruits, you shall know them. And he would always quote this stuff. And then he, some of the people he was talking about who were apparently the fruits turned out to be rotten. So does that mean that, you know, the way he was saying it is, this is how, you know, the church is true. Mm-hmm. And if so, okay. So if, if by their fruits, you shall know them. And then it turns out that the church is either producing bitter fruit or it's not producing good fruit. By that formulation, the church isn't true. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's only really the formulation if we apply it in reverse. Um, if we apply it instead as that individuals will bear better fruit <laughs> with the gospel than without it, as opposed to with the gospel, all your fruit is going to be tasty and sh- and shiny and look like honey crisp apples and, Ooh. and raspberries. Ooh. You know, I, I and, just think and it will always be that way. You'll, right. And it will always be that way. And that's what you should anticipate from all members at all times and all instructions from the organization. Yeah. I just think we culturally apply this whole thing in reverse. Yeah. And that really has bothered me multiple times in my life. Well, in reverse and always and forever. It, it, right now, this is, these are the extremes, right? It doesn't give, there's no wiggle room. For variation, mm-hmm. where you might be, you might be learning, or you might have been that super awesome Honeycrisp Aspel, and it is, it is just so crispy and awesome. And then all of a sudden, there's a bruised part. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on a more contemporary side, because obviously I came through that experience, but I mean, a number of the volunteers who I work with, who are also fellow saints, often feel like this approach is is difficult for them. Um, because they're continually told that they're doing evil by fellow saints who don't really seem to be doing much of anything. Yeah. Um, the mere fact that you're in the church is not good fruit. You must be producing good fruit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when you are hassled and told that you're evil, that you're bearing bitter fruit, when you're out there, you're trying to assist people. You, you feel like you are trying to actively cultivate a, a good vineyard. I mean, that's incredibly discouraging, but I feel like that's where, that's how I was taught this growing up in my ward and in seminary and eventually an institute. Bummer. So Taylor, you've been really quiet and I'm, I'm wondering if uh, you're going to smack down on me. Ooh. Now. No, no, not going to smack down at all. I, uh, I actually really like the way you phrase that, that we read it backwards. I think that's exactly what I was trying to get at with saying, we, we already know who—we we think we already know who Christ is, and so we come into this with this, you know, our version of Christ, and then we use this to bludgeon people who have a different version of Christ. Um, and I, I think your way of phrasing that is better. We read it backwards, and I think that has so many effects. If we, if we read it backward personally, then there's no room for us to change. There's no room for Christ to show us that he's not who we thought he was. And of yeah. course he's not who we think he is. And we, <laughs> we must keep room in ourselves to continue to know him better. And that is going to mean changes. Um, and at an institutional level, I think it, it speaks to this theme we've hammered on throughout this podcast. Like when Moroni is condemning churches, he's condemning ours. And if we yeah. read this backwards, we can't see it that way because 
he must not be condemning ours because this must be a perfectly pure fountain or else it can't be Jesus's church. And therefore everything it does must be perfect. And so instead of being in a position of seeking humbly to do better, we're constantly in a position of twisting ourselves into pretzels to defend what's already been done because we can't deal with the possibility that we could do better. Yeah. Um, and and in some sense, you know, we just I don't I don't know how many people were able to see President Oaks's recent BYU address. He talked about not being too clinging too much to the past, and I feel like in some ways the need to always justify the past keeps us stuck there. <laughs> it keeps us from moving forward and being able to do better. If we could just say if we could just be seeking to know to know Christ better and to and to express Christ better, then I think we can live better. But yeah. it it does raise a difficulty with these passages, and I don't know if it's a weakness with the passage or something that I'm just missing, but I, I see a little better some of maybe where your frustration is coming from, Andrew, in that even if we do force ourselves to read it forward, as you've suggested, there still is this problem of like, what do we do with the fact then that the church isn't a pure fountain, right? Yeah. Because well, the church m- m- isn't the fountain, the church is the fruit. Yeah. And that's and that's exactly what I was just going to say. Actually, I think I think nice. that, I think that's exactly right. I think that's the solution. And I think Moroni tries to, or Mormon tries to go there with how do you lay hold on every good thing? You lay hold on Christ. Yeah. Um, but I I do think it's it's a little bit subtler than some of the other points, and therefore easily missed um, as we've been discussing. So bonus right? points for Amanda for just getting it. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. I should I shouldn't leave my earlier quibble unresolved. So when I mentioned that this was a faith challenge for me as a young person, and actually it was such a faith challenge that I, I was basically atheist for years. <laughs> um, but, uh, was that when you were like six? Yeah. When I was six, <laughs> you were, you're advanced. So <laughs> when I was, when I was Mozarting theology, yeah. at six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for me, the resolution is that I don't have faith in people. Um, that's not who I'm called to have faith in. Um, and frankly, I'm not even called to have faith in an organization. I'm called to have faith in my Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Now my complaint is still that I feel like we don't focus on that as much as we could. Right. Um, and, and, and sometimes it's kind of a cop out. I mean, you hear, um, I, I have heard, you know, talks and general authorities kind of intimate in that direction that, well, you know, the church isn't perfect but you shouldn't let that discourage you and you shouldn't blame um, the problems of individuals or the organization on the gospel. And I'm going, well, yeah, but I mean, you should still be getting as close as possible. Right. right. We should yeah. still be trying to fix it. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is that resolution there. It's just, for me, it's very hard to look at this passage and not see the way that we've brandished this culturally, as opposed to what I think Mormon is trying to say. Um, but, but for for me to get that out of it, I think we have to read it very specifically. We can't we can't look at this like scripture mastery. Um, we can't balkanize it. We can't and even highlighting it. I think does certain disservices where you know you read it in the future and you only read the highlights. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the argument has to be taken as a whole, and it's hard to do that. And a whole meaning yeah. the entire chapter. Or just those few, those passages. I mean, just so far, we're still just doing the first half, but I mean, so many of, so much of this is drawing on New Testament passages. Um, and, but I, I, but they're passages that I think the, the New Testament has room to let breathe. And here they're kind of lumped so in such proximity that it's hard to, 
um, have that room. Like we read it quickly and kind of glaze over things. But yeah. I do think that the argument is there. Yeah. And, and actually along those lines, you're saying, I think one of the reasons that I love this chapter is um, when I, I think it's one of the first scriptural passages I, I made a serious effort at systematic study of. Oh. And, and I think that what Andrew is describing is one of the reasons, because every time I read it, I felt like I didn't know what on earth it was saying. And I finally realized that I had to really take it as a whole or I wasn't going to get what it was after. And so I, I, that was kind of the first time I really sat down and said, like, what is he saying here? Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. And, and one other quick thought that I wanted to add, I, I, really, um, I really liked what Andrew said about um, faith is not in the institution, it's in my Messiah. And um, for me, I, I think what really what has spoken to me over the course of my life about this chapter is faith is also not in myself, it's in my Messiah. And while I really, I struggle with dealing with the realities of the bitterness of my own fountain. And when, when I, when, when this chapter sort of unlocked this idea for me that somehow Christ was involved in, in the process of getting things from here to there, um, it really upped my confidence in a, in a lot of ways. And, I, and for me personally, to be able to act, to be able to say, okay, I'm not a perfect fountain, but I'm in, in this process with Christ, um, and my faith is in him, not myself. And I think the same can be true of the church. It can unlock us to go to work building the kingdom of God, including seeing its, its bitterness and trying to make it sweeter. Um, but when we don't have to have our trust when our trust isn't in ourself, then we don't have to freak out every time we have a flaw. And the same <laughs> is true for the church. <laughs> nice. Um, but at the same time, we, we, we try to make it right. Yeah. Before you move on, I'm going to throw out about that verse, that verse 11, the exact opposite. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> the exact opposite is what I got out of this reading. Because I so often feel like I am a bitter fountain. <gasps> and then I disagree with that. And thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and then in reading 11, it struck me like, okay, I might feel like a bad person, but I can look and go, you know what? But I do do good things and not in like that cop out way that we were nervous about at the beginning. Cause I totally agree with you about that. But to be able to say to myself, I am, trying and I am doing good and I am serving other people. And so in those awful depression days where I feel like I'm just the worst, I can stop and have that factual conversation with myself about, I may feel like the bitterest fountain who ever bittered, but <laughs> I have produced some good fruit and it's not the best, but I can continue to try and produce that. Nice. Sounds like you're having charity with yourself. Which is sometimes real hard. Amen. <laughs> Indeed. So I have one more observation before we move on from seven, because we're already spending too long on this chapter. Well, it's the longest chapter, so I think it's, it's true. Just great. It's true. But I, I am curious to hear your comments on this. I, I feel like, you know, so as um, as Andrew points out, this is heavily drawing on the New Testament. Um you know, bitter pure fountains. We see that in James two. Obviously, the faith, hope, charity uh, stuff is in First Corinthians thirteen. Um, this idea of 
knowing Christ and being purified by hope is in First John chapter three. Um, lots of New Testament arguments here. The one that I think we recognize the most clearly um, is this argument about charity being superior to all else, including faith and hope. And uh, my observation is, I don't feel like almost anyone actually believes that because that charity almost, is is superior. Yeah. Because almost all theological discussion I hear, almost all like doctrinal dis- differences, most of the talks I hear are about what I should believe, not the charitable acts that I should do. Because charity's the hard one. But it, yeah, I, I and, and I think that's I think that's one reason. I think also we just tend to get really caught up on you know wanting to prove what we think is right. I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I just think it bears re- reminding ourselves because. I just think it's really hard to actually treat it like the most important one. I maybe this shows my ignorance. I don't know if I've ever I mean charity is hard. I don't know if I've ever said that it is like the one to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> don't they all kind of go together? I mean to an extent, but both here and in 1 Corinthians 13, the argument's basically made like Yes, these are all important, but in the end... If you have not charity. In 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest but, of these is oh, love the for charity. Yeah, and it, he must need to have charity, for if he have not charity, he is nothing. See, that's just where Paul's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and Mormon. And, and, and Mormon. Ronai, and... <laughs> You know, Ryan, I... I love your confidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, when I was mulling on that this week, it, I still super love that definition of faith I found in the place where definitions live. <laughs> I'm still so frustrated with myself about that. Um, and the, the definition of faith was a goal that you're striving towards. And then the definition of hope that I really liked that they used was a confident expectation so that you've been striving, you've been working towards this goal so well that you have reached the point where you legitimately believe you're going to achieve it. And then in the mulling on charity, I was thinking about it as that you've reached your goal to the point where you can be concerned about other people. So I think it's not like taking each of them individually and that like, yeah, if you're charitable, but you suck at the faith and you suck at the hope, you're still fine. Um, I think that it's a ladder and that you've, once you've got your faith, then you can work on your hope. And then once you've got your hope, you can work on your charity. And so that charity being the fullest expression of both faith and hope. And so you don't want to get two-thirds the way up the ladder because then you want you want to get all the way up the ladder and so i feel like that's a more that that jives better with how i understand both the this chunk of scripture and the gospel generally than charity to the exclusion of all else Mm, i like it yeah that's interesting i i uh I, i think i think about it somewhat similarly maybe just with like a slight tweak where um, I, I definitely agree it can't be charity to the exclusion of all else. I, I guess I think of it as charity or all else has been vain. And I feel like that's kind of what Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 13. Like, 
you know, if I do all these things but have not charity, even even if I give to the poor, um, then then I you know it says a tinkling symbol. It's it does me no good. So I, I guess I I like what you're saying with these rungs on the ladder, and I think what the scriptures are arguing is not only like do we not want to stop beneath the top rung, but it, this ladder that's where this ladder is going. And if we don't go there, then it doesn't matter that we climbed the other ones. They, their purpose was to get us to the top, and if we stop short of it, then they haven't served their purpose. They are they're vain. They're they're hmm. not worth anything. So and take I, that charity. I think Isaiah's. Uh, I think Isaiah's comment about like, you know, God being sick of ordinances, you know, he's sick of the incense, he's sick of the sacrifices, it has a very similar idea. You know, the, the purpose of religious exercise is to get you to treat each other justly and with mercy and to take care of the widow and, to, and the fatherless. And if your religious exercise fails to cause you to do that, then, then Isaiah goes so far as to say God hates it. God hates yeah. that religious exercise. Um. And so to me, that's kind of what these chapters are getting at. And I, I but I, th- I really like what you're pointing out there, Amanda. Like, I, I think you're right that we don't get to charity without faith and hope. So it's not, it's not trying to say that faith and hope are not valuable. It's just trying to say, make sure they get you where they're supposed to. Yeah, I agree with that. Great. What do we think charity means? The pure love of Christ, Andrew. That solves everything. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we can move on. (laughs) I think charity might be how we've talked about this before about other things that if we are each going to have our own definition and that that definition is going to grow and evolve as we grow and evolve and that it probably tells more about us as people and as children of Christ than it does about the actual definition of the word. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, I agree. I think there, I, I do think charity is a definition we have to grow into. It's probably worth pointing out that the word charity is usually translated as love because the Greek word is agape, which is love. There's like different levels of Greek love, right? There are, there's actually quite a few. Um, famously, C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Four Loves, um, but he only talked about four of them. So <laughs> shocker. Yeah. So there are a lot of wor- words, uh, that denote different types of love in Greek. Um, agape is the one that generally denotes selfless love. Um, so totally non-conditional love embracing others. Hmm. I really like that definition for this actually N- non-conditional I like that a lot. Well, as you can see, listeners, there is a ton to discuss here, but we have to move on to chapter eight. Whoa. (laughs) Where once again, we have uh, Mormon filtered through Moroni. And this time Mormon's talking to us about infant baptism. And uh, you you meant you hit on something, Andrew, that I think is worth exploring a little bit in the beginning when you mentioned that this reads like a response to uh, the way that infant baptism was being understood in the 19th century. And maybe that's even a sort of a misunderstanding of what like the Catholic church means by infant baptism. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So when we talk about infant baptism, um, often in our church, at least it's filtered through this. So we don't actually talk about infant baptism. We just say it's an evil abomination. This section often reads basically like an American Protestant's understanding of infant baptism. I don't know. That's what, that's what it is. And what what is that just for us 
people that forgot that from history class. <laughs> <laughs> well, so infant baptism isn't only Catholic, but it does tend to appear in like high tradition Christianity. So Catholicism, orthodoxies and Lutheranism, that sort of thing. And I actually, one of the frustrations with infant baptism is that American Protestants tend to do what it does here, where it's this big abomination. Um, so for example, a lot of official church resources in our church argue that infant baptism didn't appear until the third century. Um, that's not true. Um, <laughs> we know that it was discussed as an official position by Irenaeus in around the year 180, which is second century. And also it's not just like it was starting in 180 that presumes it was going on. Um, for plenty of time for Irenaeus not to, you know, earmark it as something that was recent. Um, and also, in some ways, infant baptism is actually a very merciful doctrine. Um, mm. So the reason that infant baptism is justified theologically is because if you think about the Old Covenant of the, of the Old Testament uh, contrasted with the New Covenant of the New Testament, the Old Covenant had circumcision which was done uh, very soon after birth and was seen as an initiation of the person into the covenant community. Mm -hmm. The argument of infant baptism is that it's the same thing. Um, oh. that it Only is the less bloody. Yes, it's, it's less bloody. Um, and, and it even has a little shade that I would feel like us as Latter-day Saints would find a little familiar. So, so first of all, the, the theology is that because everyone is tainted by the fall, what, however you speak about the fall, right? Like, so you can say original sin, we all have sin, or you can just say we live in a fallen state. In either case, the baptism is seen as something that's given by God's grace. So a person does not actually even need to give consent to receive baptism, which should sound familiar to anyone who's done baptisms for the dead, mm -hmm. which we do not seek consent from the dead to do the baptisms yeah and although further, we do believe that they can reject it right well so so does someone doing infant baptism okay fair enough um and in fact there's a proxy involved um when a child is given infant baptism they have a godparent who is the one who speaks the confession of faith for the infant and then also is seen to throughout the rest of their lives be the one who is uh, meant to, to check in on that child and try to make sure that they live up to that commitment. Hmm. So not only is it reflecting shades of what we believe we're doing through proxy, but it actually takes more personal responsibility. I certainly don't remember all the names of the people that I uh, have been baptized for the dead for, what? let alone, and I don't want <laughs> to take responsibility for them. Right. Um, so actually, I think it's, I think it's actually quite a merciful uh, doctrine that it's believed that, well, let's get these children into the Christian community as quickly as possible. There's no, at least New Testament, explicit argument against it. Um, and honestly, I feel like Mormonism, when we try to have a debate on this, we tend to be a little, um, I don't know, presumptuous because we claim that we're restoring all of this stuff for which not only there is no explicit argument, but there are explicit things that we don't do. So, so, so just being grumpy about infant baptism, I think, is a little. <laughs> it makes you grumpy when we're grumpy about infant baptism. 
Yes, but I have cause. <laughs> Everyone else is just grumpy about a straw man version of infant baptism. So you sound like you're a fan of infant baptism, Andrew. You think we should do it? Sure. Hmm, that was not the answer I was expecting. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we've talked we've talked on this podcast about God recognizing our efforts, um, even in other religions. Can God do that through something that's a bit papist, like infant baptism? Uh, does does God not recognize those efforts and what their intention is, just because it's another form of a ritual that we perform? I mean, one one thing you said was that okay, this is like a, a ritual to get you in the Christian community quicker, right? Whereas in in chapter eight, it seems like Mormon is arguing like, hey, sure, that's neat, you can come into the club, but but if you start making people feel bad, like your kid's going to go to hell because they didn't get they didn't get baptized, they're screwed. That's a different story, right? It is, and that's why I say it's sort of a, a discussing it in this. American Protestant sense where it's it's not really even engaging with the practice. Um, like the, the issue is primarily about agency, which is not how it would actually be understood any more than our proxy baptisms in the temple would be. Sure. Um, like obviously that's still a dimension in whether it's accepted or followed through upon, but, but we assume that works out. So is it inaccurate then to, that to, to, to characterize the beliefs of these high church um, organizations that you're talking about as, as being that if an infant isn't baptized, then that's problematic for their eternal salvation? Um, so it can be, but the status for the most part is actually that they don't know. Okay. Um, we've, talked to, we've talked about also in the past that one of the things we lose out on a little bit when we claim we have the answer to everything is the sense of mystery of not knowing certain things. Um, so for instance, official Catholic position, Roman Catholic position on this is that they don't know what happens to children who die without baptism. Um, but that God's grace is eternal and that God is likely merciful on that point. And just as God can save the good Buddhist, why can't God save a child who wasn't baptized? Um, I mean, the Catholics basically invented an entirely new afterlife to try to account for, for this. Oh, um, concept of limbo. So it's, so it could be problematic depending on what time period you're reading a theologian talking about it. Um, like a, a Christian would certainly be encouraged to have their child baptized as soon as possible. Um, but the reasoning there is because it's a free gift through grace, it shouldn't be delayed. So there you go. But, it, but it's less the assumption that if you die unbaptized, you just, get whisked to hell or something. That's interesting. I think I think uh, talking about this in the 19th century context is interesting to me too, because one of the things I noticed, speaking of 19th century understandings, is verse 8, for example, in chapter 8, feels to me like some of the arguments he's making are, they feel a little bit incongruent with the restored gospel in a sense. So he says, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician. That's an interesting use of that phrase. Um, but then also, uh, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them, and the law of circumcision is done away in me. And a couple things jump out at me here that... Um, make me a little uncertain of how to read this. In particular, 
my understanding of restored gospel theology is that um, this mortal experience, the atonement, all of these things aren't just about getting rid of sin. They're about us becoming. They're about us growing. They're about us becoming complete, becoming like our heavenly parents, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so our wholeness isn't just about absence of sin, which a child has. A child doesn't have sin, but they're still not whole because they haven't progressed in the ways that we're seeking to progress, right? It, it just feels like to me, this verse is treating it very much like the issue of salvation is just the issue of getting rid of the curse of Adam, which is very much something that other parts of the Book of Mormon sort of take issue with. Um, so this is kind of another way in which yeah, I'm kind of with Andrew. This feels this feels 19th century-ish to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. One, one of the questions that I have is that may maybe gels with this is just the way that we actually approach infant deaths in the church. Um, for instance, stillborn children uh, aren't included on the records of the church. Um, and a lot of you know, parents who have struggled with you know, infant mortality, which of course is already a huge tragedy. And the question that comes to mind for a lot of religious people is, will I, will I claim this child hmm. um, in the eternities? And it's just assumed in our church that because they were born into the covenant, that they're functionally finished. Um, there, there's no proxy ordinances for that child at any level. Um, not only baptism, but any of them. Right. So does that mean that the child is whole or is it, or is it receiving a remission of sins from baptism? So I, and I'm not saying this is a gotcha. I'm saying in the sense that we also have mystery in this, but we, we're not comfortable with mystery to the same degree that a Catholic is. Um, so it, it's just something that comes to mind that I, I think when we, I, I, I'm always reluctant to pick on other religions, um, especially because we almost never actually engage with what they're doing. We kind of pick on the, the weakened version, the straw man of what their doctrine is. Um, in this case, infant baptism, I do not think of as a solemn mockery before God. Um, yeah, the, the, the one that I have the hardest time with in here on, on that line is, um, that he, that he, that saith little children need baptism, denieth the mercies of Christ, setteth it not the atonement of him and the power of his redemption. Woe unto such for they are in danger of death, hell, and an endless torment. Whoa. Um, and I just feel like, do I really think that like good Catholic priests, because they believe in infant baptism. I mean, I just, I have a hard time reconciling this. This is a hard chapter for me. Well, we've talked about God appreciating people's well-intentioned efforts. Right. Um, so, so if a priest is legitimately baptizing a child with the expectation that the child is receiving that remission of sins, which is more about trajectory than the cleansing event. And if if the church has additional sacraments with the, which the child is supposed to partake in that are also on that trajectory. And if the church is setting up a proxy that, who's supposed to guide the child, in what way is that a mockery? Yeah. I think one thing that does come out of this chapter that I, I can say, at least for, for why I, one thing that I think I understand from this that, I, that makes sense to me is not so much that that's a mockery of God, but that it's a misunderstanding of baptism. I, I do feel like one part of Mormon's argument here is that the purpose of baptism is for us to repent. It's for us to to sort of make this covenant that we're going to change. 
And because it's so deeply intertwined with faith and repentance, it's a misunderstanding of the ordinance to offer it to someone who's not yet capable of expressing those things. Um, Again, I don't see that as a solemn mockery before God. I see that as a misunderstanding of the purpose of baptism. Um, But And like you say, Andrew, in fact, I think in the Catholic Church, they just they have other sacraments that serve the purpose that Mormon is talking about here. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think this one thing that does come out of this very clearly is we should really think about baptism as a very conscious um, expression of faith and a very conscious commitment to, um, to repentance. So much so that I think Mormon's arguing that absent those two things, it's no longer baptism. Yeah. I mean, it's even, even the mechanical practice um, is, is something where we, we speak imprecisely into the broader context of the, the discourse of what baptism is. We talk about baptism by immersion when we mean baptism by submersion. Um, (laughs) Well, and this is one of those situations I feel like where we just don't like, we obviously read it as either the interpretation of infant baptism like the catholic version of infant baptism and we have so little information about what's going on with the people that mormon is dealing with and so it's like our concept of infant baptism that we're dealing with is absolutely not a endless torment kind of situation and so it makes me ask myself like what is what's going on here what what is the context for like my historical context like this is one of those times where like i feel like i'm missing a very important thing and because i don't have that very important thing i'm just going to take this chapter and apply it to my own stuff and be smug which is the opposite of the thing that we generally are supposed to do it's so like i don't be thou, be thou smug is that yeah. What you just... <laughs> yeah absolutely you read those verses right um so i don't quite know what to like how to find use out of the first several columns of this chapter that because it's so distinctly and literally talking and so like i appreciate your thoughts on it taylor that there was something just some useful thoughts about what baptism should actually mean and get extract something from this because it doesn't make sense for us to take a literal conversation about hell and infant baptism yeah and i I think you bring up a good point there um, that we don't know the context and therefore we should be really careful applying it to our context I think there's a couple ways to deal with this. I mean, I, I as we've talked about before, I'm really comfortable with the idea that Joseph is already doing that. He, he's uh, he's bringing what he's reading into his context. So I'm I'm comfortable with the possibility that Mormon didn't have all of this to say about infant baptism, but it got res- it got tied up in 19th century theology by Joseph's mind as he was working as a filter. But but I think another option, like you point out, is just that maybe there was some kind of practice that Mormons responding to. Um, was really heinous <laughs> somehow well, and like it see it seems like an impossible thing to be heinous but these people also were cannibals in like 20 years so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. when this is not a topic upon which like and like you're going to find super broad agreement um for example taylor when we talk about um that it's a misunderstanding um 
because it's meant for repentance. We've also talked about in the past in our church, people being baptized multiple times. Right. So why has that practice gone away? Um, you know, a lot of early Christology speaks about baptism as basically being a partaker in rebirth uh, in the resurrection, um, even to a really literal level, which we've talked about before. Um, see season one. Yeah, see, go back to season one if you want to talk about a lot of baptism. Yeah. Um, you know, so so which which of these things are the essential core? Um, you know, even even high tradition churches don't necessarily agree exactly uh, in their catechisms on you know what what is the baptism exactly accomplishing? Hmm. Yeah, awesome. it's an interesting topic. So I feel like we're we're really running short on time in this episode. And would anyone be super offended if we didn't get to chapter nine? Nah, chapter nine's boring. <laughs> chapter nine is just depressing. It is it's the, I legitimately tried like four different times and couldn't bring myself to. I just skipped straight to that. I will no longer talk about these depressing things. Yeah. Like, awesome. <laughs> and I just skipped straight to twenty five and twenty six. The last two. I think that's those are the great. I'm going to balkanize those two scriptures. Do you want to remind us what those balkanized scriptures say, Ryan? My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee, to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death, and the showing his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory, and of eternal life, Rest in your mind forever, and may the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Amen. Those are happier verses. Maybe Moroni is older here, and Mormon just needs someone to talk to, and they're writing, this is a big, long text message back in the day. Well, seriously, <laughs> like, what's, what, how are you delivering letters? Here. Yeah, yeah, and and this is just a bummer stuff. But dude, hold true to the faith. Yeah, I do love chat. I do love that about chapter nine. Just this <clears throat> this sense of <clears throat> we can do our duty anyway. We can trust in Christ anyway. I think actually, in some ways, it, it loops back to the beginning and what we were talking about in chapter seven. This idea of our faith isn't in these outcomes anyway. Our faith isn't in changing the hearts of these people. It's not in saving the Nephite nation. It's in Christ. And so yeah. our, our problems and our difficulties can all be swallowed up by him. So I'm okay with skipping nine. <laughs> well, I think we covered it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Third Hour Podcast. You're welcome. You'll never know what it cost us to get it recorded. Uh, yeah, for real, dude. I almost lost three friends. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening. And if you didn't like it, we don't want to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go, go work on your charity, okay? If you did like it, however, give us a rating and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And we look forward to talking to you next week when we will finish the Book of Mormon. Whoa. Thank you for joining us. This was the third hour, a Latter-day Saint Homesteady podcast. If you felt any impressions or had any comments, we would love to hear them at the third hour podcast.com. We'll see you next time.